Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. And today I'd like to roll back the hands of time to talk about a 19th century transportation phenomenon that few people remember, but one that revolutionized the concept of mobility in the Charleston area and continues to impact our community in the 21st century. I'm talking about the Omnibus. More than just a curious episode in the history of transportation, the horse-drawn Omnibus was an important step in the economic growth of the Charleston region. As a historian, I'm convinced that understanding the facts surrounding the rise and fall and resurgence of the omnibus in the 19th century can help us better understand our current transportation crisis. And in case you didn't know, the legacy of the omnibus is alive, but not so well on our streets today. Let's begin with some definitions, because the word omnibus can have several different meanings. In the world of transportation history, an omnibus is a four-wheeled carriage drawn by horses. Now, remember, the word carriage itself is a generic term used to describe a wide variety of horse-drawn vehicles. So, technically, an omnibus is nothing more than a type of carriage. More specifically, an omnibus is a type of horse-drawn carriage that travels along a predetermined route following a predetermined schedule, carrying passengers for a predetermined fee. An omnibus might be a small carriage capable of carrying, say, six passengers drawn by two horses, or an omnibus might be a longer carriage capable of carrying, say, 20 passengers drawn by four horses. Most omnibuses had two axles and four wheels, but there were a few mighty omnibuses in the biggest cities with three axles and six wheels. Typically, however, there was one characteristic physical difference between a generic carriage and an omnibus. Where a small carriage usually had two bench seats oriented in parallel lines with the axles, an omnibus usually had two long bench seats oriented perpendicular to the axles. In short, you might think of an omnibus as a sort of stretch carriage not unlike a stretch limousine that you might see on the road today. The arrival of the omnibus in the first quarter of the 19th century represented the avant-garde of a worldwide transportation revolution that eventually gave rise to such technological marvels as the railroad, the velocipede, the automobile, and even the airplane. Unlike those later inventions, however, the omnibus itself was not the product of any technological revolution. Rather, the advent of the omnibus in the early 19th century was the product of a commercial innovation. That is to say, the early proponents of the omnibus took pre-existing technology and pre-existing cultural practices and redeployed them in novel ways that created a market that did not previously exist. To fully understand the importance of the omnibus revolution, we need to back up and look at the ground transportation options available to people around the year 1800. At the most basic level, of course, people walked wherever they needed to go. Foot travel is slow, however, and limited by one's physical stamina. 
Walking also isn't very practical when one needs to carry any sort of cargo. People with a bit of money could purchase or even rent a horse, which is the next step up on the transportation ladder. Persons wishing to go from point A to point B carrying cargo and or passengers could purchase or rent a carriage, a chair, which is a two-wheeled vehicle pulled by one horse, a cart, or a dray, which is a flat cart without sidewalls. These transportation options had existed in Europe for many centuries, and of course they came to the New World with the earliest colonists. American colonists also imported two forms of ground transportation commerce called the hack and the stage. A hack, short for hackney or hackney coach, was essentially a taxi service. A man with a horse and a carriage waited for customers who paid him to carry them to a specific location. In general, the hack was an urban phenomenon, just like the taxi or Uber of our modern city streets. If one needed to go from town to the country, or from one town to another in early America, however, one could ride the stage, or stagecoach. This was a mode of horse-drawn transportation that specialized in making longer-distance trips in stages, with stops at predetermined intervals to feed, water, or refresh the horses. The earliest known stagecoach service in South Carolina commenced right here in the Lowcountry in the late 1760s, carrying passengers overland to the northward. Now, you might think that the 1760s sounds a bit late, nearly a century after the founding of Carolina. But keep in mind that in those early days, it was always easier, cheaper, faster, and even safer to travel by water than overland. Innovations in ground transportation didn't really begin in this country until the early years of the 19th century, which brings us back to the omnibus. Like the hackney coach, the omnibus was principally an urban phenomenon. But while a hack is a vehicle waiting passively for a customer, an omnibus is a vehicle that is continually in motion. It travels along an established route, usually a loop that ends where it began and picks up passengers along the way. Rather than negotiating a fee for this service, omnibus passengers purchase tickets at fixed prices. In short, the 19th century omnibus was the forerunner of the 20th century bus, which is, technically, a motorized omnibus with an abbreviated name. As I mentioned earlier, the invention of the omnibus didn't involve new technology. Rather, it represented a new business strategy that was born out of the Industrial Revolution that was sweeping the Western world in the early 19th century. As factories and mills began to proliferate in Europe, spawned by the rise of steam-powered machines, there was a surge in demand for laborers to work in urban and suburban factories. The capitalists who invested in building steam-powered textile mills, sawmills, foundries, and other industrial plants desperately needed people to run the machines. Since most of this industrial work required little skill or education and offered very little pay, an average factory worker could not afford to own his own horse or carriage for transportation to and from work. Some workers might live close enough to be able to walk to work, 
but most of the labor pool in the early 19th century lived beyond the limits of the new industrial cities. Enter the omnibus, which is actually a word borrowed from Latin meaning for all. By creating a reliable, predictable public transportation network that carried workers from their homes to the factory and points in between, the creators of the first omnibus network gave birth to the modern concept of public mass transit. The advent of the omnibus was a significant boost to the world of commerce and consumption in general. Simultaneously, the omnibus ushered in a new era of personal mobility that changed society forever. Although the novelty was soon eclipsed by the more technologically impressive steam locomotive, the omnibus remains one of the most significant transportation innovations of the Industrial Revolution. The earliest omnibuses appeared in France in the late 18-teens, and by 1820 they were a common sight in the crowded streets of sprawling Paris. As this new commercial venture flourished in the City of Lights, businessmen from abroad began to take notice. New York witnessed its first omnibus in 1827, followed by London in 1829, then Philadelphia in 1831. Keep in mind, however, all of these ventures represented private rather than public investments. Although the omnibus was a revolution in public mobility, there was no municipal or government investment in the early years of this phenomenon. The same was true here in Charleston, where in 1833 a group of private investors saw an opportunity to create an omnibus market in South Carolina's business capital. Before we get into the details of Charleston's first omnibus service, let's take a minute to assess the market for such a service in our city. In 1833, Charleston was the commercial hub of a vast agricultural network that relied almost exclusively on the labor of enslaved, unpaid workers. Almost all manufactured goods consumed in South Carolina were imported through the busy port of Charleston. Although the city boasted a handful of steam-powered machines at that time, Charleston was not on a trajectory to become a manufacturing powerhouse, and our political leaders were firmly committed to continuing our exploitative agricultural economy. Nevertheless, some investors recognized the utility of some of the latest technology. To facilitate the transportation of rice and cotton to the city for export, and conversely to facilitate the distribution of imported manufactured goods throughout the region, a group of investors formed in 1827 the South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company, and by 1830 it was operating the first commercial railroad in the United States. By the summer of 1832, there was a daily commuter passenger service between downtown Charleston and the new bedroom community of Somerville. Shortly thereafter, railroads linked Charleston to other, more distant cities, and the movement of people and goods through the port city grew at an exponential rate. Hotels appeared like mushrooms, and Charleston's residential neighborhoods crept further up the peninsula. Even without becoming a manufacturing town like Manchester or Pittsburgh, Charleston in 1833 was facing its own transportation conundrum. 
how do we move people around the city in an expeditious, economical, and reliable fashion? The answer, of course, was the omnibus. Because the omnibuses of 19th century Charleston were operated as private business, and those businesses have long since disappeared, there are very few surviving records to help us reimagine the heyday of the omnibus in our community. Almost everything I know about this topic has been gleaned from the extant newspapers of Charleston, which you're welcome to come to the library and read for yourself. For example, in the Southern Patriot of October 9, 1833, we find the following brief editorial notice. Quote, A few enterprising gentlemen of this city have ventured on the experiment of introducing omnibuses for the accommodation of the citizens for conveyance to and from the railroad. Two of these vehicles arrived here yesterday in the ship Harriet and Jesse from New York. We wish the enterprise every success. End quote. A few days later, on October 14th, the same newspaper carried a more robust description of the proposed service. Quote, a company of gentlemen thinking that public carriages through the business streets would be a great convenience to the mercantile and other interests of Charleston have purchased omnibuses similar to those used in the principal cities of the North and in Europe. They propose to run from the exchange to Line Street, through King Street, leaving each place every half hour. The recent arrival of the carriages will not allow the company to complete their arrangements immediately, but during the present week, one of them, the merchant, will leave the exchange for Line Street at 8 a.m. and at 2 and 5 p.m., and will leave the same station for Boundary Street at 9, 10, and 11 o'clock and 12 meridian and at 3 and 4 p.m. each day, returning from line or boundary street each intermediate half hour. The charge for passage will be at the lowest possible rates. The following are now fixed for the whole or any part of the distance, at, for each passenger, 12 and a half cents for one ticket, or 10 tickets for a dollar. To enable the company to be punctual in the time of starting, the drivers will be instructed not to leave their prescribed route, or to wait for passengers longer than is necessary to enter or retire from the vehicle. Nor can any luggage be carried except such as may be held in the hands of the owner without inconvenience to the other passengers." End quote. A week later, the Southern Patriot of 21 October 1833 carried a revised schedule that helps us to imagine both the route of Charleston's first omnibuses as well as the new concept of public transit through the city. Quote, the proprietors of the omnibuses inform the public that they have made the following arrangements for the winter. An omnibus will leave the exchange for Boundary Street and the lines punctually at the following hours. Morning trips. At 8 o'clock to Boundary Street. At half past 8 to Boundary Street and the lines. 9 a.m. to Boundary Street and the lines. Half past 9 to Boundary Street and the lines. 10 a.m. to Boundary Street. Half past 10 to Boundary Street. 11 a.m. to Boundary Street. 
half past 11 to Boundary Street, 12 o'clock to Boundary Street and the lines. Evening trips, half past 1 p.m. to Boundary Street, 2 p.m. to Boundary Street and the lines, half past 2 to Boundary Street and the lines, 3 to Boundary Street, half past 3 to Boundary Street, 4 p.m. to Boundary Street, half past 4 to Boundary Street and the lines, 5 to Boundary Street and the lines, and will return from the above-named places each alternate half hour. Passengers will be taken up or set down at any part of the route. The only object of the proprietors being to benefit the commercial and other interests of the city, the strictest propriety must be observed so that ladies may avail themselves of this mode of conveyance without being inconvenienced. Fair, 12 and a half cents or 10 tickets for a dollar. Children, half price. End quote. From this modest beginning in the autumn of 1833, Charleston's omnibus service flourished over the next three decades. As competitors entered the lucrative market, new routes or lines were created that connected people to all points on the peninsula, from White Point Garden and the Battery on the city's south edge to Washington Racecourse and Magnolia Cemetery on the north, from the wharves along East Bay Street to the new residential areas on the Upper West Side. Visitors arriving in Charleston by steamboat or by railroad could hop on an omnibus and ride to their hotel, just like visitors to New York or Paris. In order to allay concerns about the possible mixing of different classes of people, most omnibus proprietors, including those in Charleston, took pains to assure their customers that the greatest attention to propriety and decorum would be observed within their buses, and that no breach of polite etiquette would be tolerated. In antebellum Charleston, that policy translated into an unspoken tradition of racial segregation. Now, I haven't found a single written statement prohibiting enslaved people or even free people of color from riding our city's omnibuses, but I'm quite sure that the majority of the white citizens in pre-Civil War Charleston would not have permitted such people to ride. Did the omnibuses admit enslaved servants accompanying white people, such as nurses and valets? Well, that's a good question. But unfortunately, I'd have to do further research before hazarding a guess on that one. The total number of omnibuses plying the streets of antebellum Charleston is a bit of a mystery since there are no surviving records of any of these extinct businesses. The number was apparently high enough to attract the attention of city council, however, and in the spring of 1843, the city began requiring licenses for omnibuses. Charleston had required commercial vehicles such as carts, drays, and public carriages to purchase and display annual licenses since the late colonial era as a way to offset the costs of road maintenance. Since the new omnibuses were also contributing to the wear and tear on Charleston's streets, it was only natural to extend the law to include them. Starting in April of 1843, the operator of a four-wheeled omnibus had to pay the large sum of $40 for the privilege of conducting business on the streets of Charleston. As the number of vehicles and ridership increased, so too did public pressure to reduce the fees. 
In August of 1849, City Council reduced the annual license fee for an omnibus drawn by two horses to $4, while an omnibus drawn by four horses cost $8. In January 1852, City Council took a step closer to actually running the omnibus system by creating a law that prescribed the routes, fares, speed, and wheel size of the vehicles. The license for a two-horse omnibus in 1852 was set at $20 and a four-horse bus at $30. But these license rates could be reduced by half if the vehicle in question had wheels greater than four inches in width because wider tires were less likely to make ruts in the city's sandy streets. Every omnibus was required to mount lamps inside and outside the carriage for nighttime use. The city prescribed the routes of four regular lines through the city. They called them the Exchange Line, East Bay and Battery Line, Meeting Street and Battery Line, and King Street and Battery Line. The regular single fare, whether one rode for just one stop or a complete circuit of one of the prescribed lines, was set at six and a quarter cents, while children under the age of three rode for free when accompanied by an adult, of course. No passengers were allowed to ride on the outside or on top of the vehicle. Finally, the 1852 minimum speed for Charleston's omnibuses was four miles per hour with a maximum speed of six miles per hour. Turning a corner in a long, horse-drawn vehicle had to be done at a slower rate, defined here as being, quote, in a walk, end quote. In the years leading up to the American Civil War, the omnibus business continued to grow as Charleston's residential and commercial interests expanded, and the city council continued in its noble efforts to regulate the increasingly busy streets. Omnibuses continued to serve the urban and suburban community during the war years, 1861 to 1865, but the number of buses was greatly reduced and the size of the routes greatly contracted. Business and traffic rebounded quickly as soon as the winds of war settled down, but there was a change looming on the horizon. The omnibus was really an 1820s concept that came to Charleston in 1833. In more recent years, the transportation phenomenon of the 1850s was the street railroad, which didn't arrive in Charleston until after the Civil War. After more than a year of laying tracks made of steel rails through the streets of urban Charleston, the city's first horse-drawn street railway, or streetcar system, hit the road on December 15, 1866. The main advantage of this hybrid of railroad and omnibus technology was a smoother ride, but in many ways it was merely an incremental improvement. The street rail system was perhaps less prone to weather-related interruptions and perhaps moved a bit faster, but it still relied on old-fashioned horsepower, and thus it was also subject to the vagaries of the animal's temperament. Nevertheless, the advent of Charleston's first street railway system in 1866 signaled the decline of the omnibus, which had appeared on our streets just 33 years earlier. 
When I first began exploring the history of Charleston's omnibuses, I fully expected to find evidence that these vehicles were totally replaced and superseded by the newfangled streetcars in the late 1860s. In some respects, my hunch proved accurate, but not entirely so. In fact, the story is much more complicated, more interesting, and more relevant than I imagined. After the inauguration of Charleston's first street railway cars in December 1866, the private company that funded the venture quickly expanded its services. As new track was laid, new streetcars came online to serve more customers and to connect them with more points around the peninsula and beyond. Like the older omnibuses, the streetcars followed prescribed routes on a predictable timetable and sold tickets according to fixed prices. The urban rail cars did the same job as the omnibuses, but in light of Charleston's unpaved streets, they did it better. In response to these changes, the proprietors of the old-fashioned omnibuses focused their attention on a service that had once been just a niche market, customized routes and customized transportation services. For example, the proprietors of a fancy hotel might contract with an omnibus driver to shuttle its guests between the hotel and the train station, or the steamboat landing. The organizers of a special event, like a horse race, a picnic, or a fancy ball, might contract with an omnibus driver to shuttle private guests to and from the event. The railroad companies even hired horse-drawn omnibuses to whisk their customers to and from the train depot to keep them from getting lost in busy Charleston. In short, omnibuses became the limousines and shuttle buses of late 19th century Charleston. The omnibus represented an older technology, but its ability to change routes without having to move steel tracks gave it a valuable advantage over the streetcar. Even after the electric trolley replaced the horse-drawn streetcars in the late 1890s, horse-drawn omnibuses continued to ply the streets of Charleston well into the 1920s. Eclipsed in the 1860s by the streetcar and by the electric trolley in the 1890s, the omnibus survived into the early 20th century and eventually had its revenge. The ally of the antebellum omnibus during this era was the latest transportation phenomenon, the gasoline-powered automobile. As early as 1905, the owners of electric trolleys in London began experimenting with what they called the motor omnibus to see if the new vehicles would prove more flexible and more comfortable than the street rail system. The paying public soon grew to prefer the motorized buses, as they were sometimes called, and the owners of trolley franchises around the world took notice. Technological improvements in the automotive world appeared at a lightning pace during the early years of the 20th century, and Charleston was not left behind. In August of 1917, the Charleston Transport Company, a private firm specializing in transporting baggage and passengers around town, announced that they had sold their horses and purchased a motor omnibus and a taxicab style of motor car. This move in 1917 was the beginning of the end for the trolley system. By the spring of 1918, 
the members of King Street's Retail Merchants Association were fed up with the trolleys clogging the narrow street and discouraging customers. According to a report published in the News and Courier on February 22nd, the business community was convinced that, quote, motor omnibuses would solve a serious problem, end quote. For the next 20 years, our community debated the pros and cons of the electric trolley with its fixed routes that generally took up the center of every street it used, and the motorized omnibus with its ability to change its route and steer in any direction the driver wished. In the end, the motor bus won the day. On February 10, 1938, the electric trolleys of Charleston made their last circuit of the city's street rail network and were then consigned to the scrap heap. During 70 years of competition and coexistence, the omnibus adapted, persevered, and eventually proved to be the better vehicle. In 21st century Charleston, public transportation is a red-hot topic. The condition of our roads and infrastructure, not to mention the demands of our economy and workforce, suggests the present need for viable mass transit solutions is greater now than at any other point in our history. The streetcars and electric trolleys of the late 19th century were once popular and profitable, but the nostalgic desire to bring back the street rail system would be prohibitively expensive. Today, diesel buses ply our city streets and suburban highways, but unfortunately public support and ridership aren't very high. Charleston is a city and a region steeped in history, and tourism is an important part of the local economy. Now, I'm not an economist or a politician, but as a historian, I can offer this bit of insight. Buses, in various forms, have played a significant role in low country transportation history. After experimenting with other, more expensive modes of public transportation for a couple of generations, Charlestonians of a century ago expressed a decided preference for the flexibility and comfort of the modern motor bus. Now that our streets and highways are more crowded than ever, Perhaps it's time we embrace the legacy of the omnibus. After all, it's been a Charleston tradition since 1833. I hope you've enjoyed this journey into the past aboard the Charleston Time Machine. Kevin Crothers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. I'll be back on the air next week with more adventures in low country history. If you'd like to join me in person for a live presentation, check out the library's calendar of events at ccpl.org or visit my blog, charlestontimemachine.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future. <laughs>